0: This episode of Shell Shocked is brought to you by Fleshlight. Fleshlight, don't act like you don't know what it is. Thank you for joining us for Shell Shocked. In this episode, we'll be discussing issues of morality and bigotry. And later, we'll have an interview with psychologist and author Dr. Michael Shermer. So sit back, grab a stiff drink, and settle in for Shell Shock, Episode 1. Episode One of Shell Shocked. My name is Sheldon Helms and with me is my co-host. I'm going to allow her to introduce herself to you.
1: (laughs) Hi, my name is Amanda, Amanda DeVal.
0: And I live in the United States of America and she doesn't. And
1: I don't. (laughs) I live in Canberra, Australia, so I am part of Australian Skeptics. So we've gone into world continental.
0: So we're going to begin episode 1 by telling you a little bit about who we are, what our relationship to skepticism is, and what we hope to do with this brand new podcast. So, I guess I'll start. Uh, as I said, my name is Sheldon Helms. I am the vice president of the Bay Area Skeptics, which is one of the oldest and longest running skeptical organizations in the state of California, maybe one of the oldest and longest running in the US. Uh, We are headed up by a wonderful person that many of our listeners may have heard of before, named Dr. Eugenie Scott. She's a very well-known anthropologist, skeptic, author, etc. And I'm very pleased to serve on the board of directors with her. My relationship to skepticism is a relatively short one, but I think meaningful. Um, In the 1980s and early 90s, I was a big new ager. And I believed in all of that crystal energy stuff and I Ching oh coin readings and, and psychic <laughs> readings. And I had a fateful day when I went to the Boditree bookstore in Los Angeles where I like to go to get my wonderful books that I spent far too much money on. And there was a book sitting on the shelf that seemed to be about Nostradamus. And I thought, you know, I want to get to know this Nostradamus character better. I know that he was a (laughs) a psychic soothsayer from previous time, and he had something to do with the the kings and queens of the era, but I don't know him very well. I knew Edgar Cayce, and I knew he was sort of a modern-day version. So I bought this book on Nostradamus, and I took it home, and I started reading it, and it was... You know, interesting, but also a little disheartening because the narrative seemed to be, well, here's why some people believe that Nostradamus predicted the future. And is it interesting that he used words like in his writings, and then later on people started making the claim that that meant Hitler, that he just got it a little bit wrong. And we call that data mining. And there were all these new terms and I was taking notes and writing them down. By the time I got about halfway through that book, I kind of had my oh shit moment, where I thought I I think I've been had here I don't think this book Sorry. is about psychics at all so I looked at the cover and the, the book is called the mask of Nostradamus and the author is a man named James Randy so <laughs> I sat there in absolute astonishment thinking well who does this guy think he is and clearly I've wasted my money on this book so I just sort of tossed it aside but I think it sort of planted a seed in my mind because later on I took another a science class, and I took a psychology class at college and i uh I bought a couple of other books that were you know sort of skep i would say now in retrospect skeptically oriented and eventually, over time, I started to realize that a lot of the beliefs that I had were not really very well founded in reality, let alone science, and started to <laughs> take a new world view and I can't really say it was an overnight change but I know that that book was the start of something. Looking back on it, I'm thinking, who was the person who worked at this new age bookstore who accidentally bought a book by James Randi and put it on the shelf for sale? I guess I'll never know, but I owe that person a coffee because later on, I would end up meeting James Randi and getting to know him pretty well and meeting all of these amazing people like Michael Shermer, who you'll hear later on the show, and getting to work within the skeptical realm and contribute my little piece. So that's yeah. my story in a nutshell. Amanda.
1: Wow, my story. Well, my story is actually surprisingly similar. Um, so I can't really mock you too much about your new (laughs) age belief. As I said, I'm part of the Australian Skeptics and the Canberra Skeptics. Uh, I was until recently Vice President of the Canberra Skeptics and now I have been working on promoting Skeptic activism. That's my passion. The way I got into it was kind of interesting. I grew up, Um, I kind of grew up with James Randi in a way and Carl Sagan, they were my heroes and I remember seeing James Randi's interview with Don Lane um, where he completely smacked him down like a baby and I just thought, oh this is amazing. But I grew up as a new ager as well, I actually grew up as a witch in a Wiccan household and I grew up believing in the moon phases and how it affects and all that hoopy doopy stuff and also believing that I was psychic, believing that I was a healer and I'm proud to say that I have a certificate in level 2 Reiki. It's oh. pretty awesome. I know I'm sorry (laughs) but and I so I believed in all that crap I believed in aromatherapy I actually grew herbs in order to make my oils to heal people I believed in past lives and I believed in ghosts and all this stuff but in the back of my mind there was always this little voice which I think was James Randi in the back of my head wanting to question it there was always a part of me that never fully committed to the whole new age realm. I was, I loved science. I, I remember love critical thinking back when I was in the cradle. You know, I, I loved questioning things. But on the other hand, and I found this fascinating, I believed in this stuff because it was important to me. It was part of how I grew up. It was, it was something that gave me comfort in really horrible situations. So I didn't want to lose that. So along the way, the rational skeptic in me started coming out more and more of the closet, and I started thinking, I'm not being very honest with myself, and I'm not being very honest with other people. So I, my oh shit moment, was I actually did a bit of an experiment to test myself because a friend of mine, I used to take her, you know, oils in to heal people of the stuff so i could see let's just see how this works so i actually brought in a little jar of water um for a friend of mine who had a cold seeing you know thinking okay i'm going to bring you a little potion that's going to help you and i wanted to test it and it was a pretty scary moment for me because it was kind of my honesty moment that this is all bullshit that i and she said to me she come back to work the next day and said that's amazing, I, I feel so much better, thank you so much, can you bring me more, so, you know, you have to, you should be selling this stuff, and I remember thinking, this is horrifying, this is, and I actually said to her, this is water, this is water, so I have to speak like American, water this This is nothing, and I realized at that point, and I, I that I had to be more honest with myself, so I started reading more and more and more, and I read this little book called Flim Flam, and researching more and researching more, and realizing that I was just being deluded by this belief that had no basis to it whatsoever. And it also fueled my activism from very early on because I wanted other people to see this. And it also triggered my fascination in psychology because I wanted to understand why people would believe this stuff. Why did I believe this stuff? Even though really, if I was going to be honest with myself, I knew there was no basis, no evidence behind it whatsoever. I saw nothing that was confirmed. I I didn't actually, a ghost did not come and visit me in the night. You know, there was nothing there. So that led me on skepticism as well as psychology all in the one go. And now I'm passionate about um, educating others in in, in what's going on and what the evidence is and encouraging people to ask the question why and what this is about rather than just be so, uh, so encompassed by the need to be comforted by something that doesn't exist. So that's where I'm at at the moment. <laughs> and along the way, I've met some amazing people, such as yourself and um, James Randi, and you know Susan Gerbig And I've been inspired by Susan and Mark Edward and all these amazing people who devote their entire lives to skepticism.
0: Excellent. Uh, you know just to be honest with our listeners we should probably let them know this is actually technically the first time we've spoken to each other we've been talking via Skype and um for maybe an hour or so an hour and a half or so and just we've known each other online we've seen each other do work but we've never really communicated directly until now and for a few weeks now we've been kicking around this idea of putting together our own podcast and getting our version of skepticism out there in the world and hoping that we'll do a better job as time goes on and that people will write to us send us emails etc join our facebook page and let us know what they think of the show and what they'd like to hear from us
1: i agree and there's so many people out there who have such wonderful ideas and i think the fact that you and i are coming at this from opposite ends of the world literally we're hoping to bring something a little bit different to to a plethora of podcasts out there on skepticism so we're you know and I think I'm very excited to be part of this and you know I think it's going to be
2: pretty good <laughs>
0: Joined now by Dr. Michael Shermer. Dr. Shermer is a well-known person in the skeptic community as the founder of Skeptic Magazine. He's a psychologist, an educator, and an author of numerous books, including his most recent, "The Moral Arc: How Science and Reason Lead Humanity Toward Truth, Justice, and Freedom." Um, I'm sure you've been met with nothing but agreement so far in presenting these ideas, right, Michael? <laughs>
3: yeah, quite. Right. On a you know, talk show. A conservative radio talk show the other day. uh Of course, the abort- abortion issue comes up, and you know if you're in favor of same-sex marriage, then you have to be in favor of polygamy and in favor of people marrying their dogs. And you know, yeah these people just go down these slippery slopes and seem incapable of reasoning rationally about moral issues without going off the deep end. Um, and these are the people that are religious, so you know they they're not thinking too clearly about what the their, their holy book actually says about these things, which is pretty abhorrent.
0: So your new book's called The Moral Arc. Uh, what are morals in a nutshell?
3: Uh, well, I'm, I'm defining my, my moral starting point as the um, survival and flourishing of sentient beings. So by survival and flourishing, I mean just what natural selection um, thou shaped us with, the desire to live and, and survive and, and thrive. And by sentient beings, I mean any any creatures that can feel and emote and especially suffer. I'm taking my um, hint there from I mean, the argument from uh, Jeremy Bentham's original arguments for animal rights, or, or, or at least uh, the abolition of cruelty against animals, that it isn't so much can they think or reason or use tools or have language, but can they suffer? Can they feel pain? Uh, that should be our concern. And I also focus on the individual uh, in terms of uh, moral questions, Um, not the group, not the race, not the gender, not the uh, sexual preference or anything, any other abstract category or or group category, but the the actual individual. And the reason for that is because, first, the natural selection targets individuals, not groups. And second, it's, it's an individual that feels and suffers, You know, a singular brain inside of a skull of an individual—that's who who has the capacity to suffer, not races and genders and so on. And and three, it's it's individuals that want rights, not groups. You know, individuals vote. Women don't vote. A woman votes. Um, And then finally, the last reason for focusing on the individual. Is that you know the biggest body counts in history have been racked up by the sacrifice of the individual to the group, the religion, the the, the nation, uh, the collective of some kind, and uh, and it's easy to see how that happens because as as you're well aware of the trolley car experiments, trolley you know experiments where you know a train is hurtling down a track and is about to kill these five workers who somehow mysteriously don't you're the train, uh, and uh, you standing at the switch are given the opportunity to flip the switch and and send the train down a different track where it will kill one worker. You know, would you flip the switch? And almost everybody says they would flip the switch. It's a simple utilitarian calculation: kill one to save five. Um, but that 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 you, kind of utilitarian thinking, particularly sacrificing the few to save the many, or Enhance the many too easily slides into sacrificing instead of one to save five, sacrificing one million to save five million or ten million to save fifty million and before you know it you've got yourself a genocide I mean this is how it happens it starts off in what seems like a good idea, like we have this problem facing our group, and we think it's these people over here, so we got to get rid of them and you know before you know it you, you, you go down that road and, and you end up in these hemoclysms of death so uh, I'm not a utilitarian in that sense, I think it has some value, but ultimately it has that problem um so that that's you know sort of the long version of how I define and talk about morality in the book
0: I think if you ask most people in everyday life about morals, they're going to start talking about religion and culture, and then most of the skeptics I talk to immediately start talking about the role of evolution in our morals. Um, which do you think it is, or is it both, and to what degree
3: uh well first of all um most people, they do just make the assumption that if you're talking about morality, we're talking about something to do with religion. And I think in part that's because religion got a head start of over secular philosophy and science in terms of thinking about these issues. You know, they've been, religion's been around for thousands of years. So, and, uh, and so people just naturally associated with that. And also religions take credit for most everything. And, and then finally, I think most, most people, including scientists, atheists, skeptics, humanists and so on, they they just repeat this mantra that science has nothing to say about values and right and wrong and, you know, that's that, that belongs to the realm of philosophy or religion and you know, and so I'm debunking that myth. It's not true. It's absolutely not true. And and I show in the book that in fact everybody Already agrees with me that things like public health measures to save millions of lives from disease through uh, sanitation technologies and epidemiological studies and the germ theory of disease these are all good things that that we are doing because you know we know it's the rational thing to do and to say that well I can't really say that you know why, why is that a good thing to to do why why is it good to save hundreds of millions of people. Uh, and, and enable them to f- survive and thrive. Why? Why is that good? And, and and people will just say, I don't know. It's just our cultural preference. And science cannot tell us that that's a good. Yes, it can. Of course, it can. Uh, I mean, evolution designed us to want to survive and thrive. That that's it. That's the moral starting point. Everybody knows that's true. You feel it in your gut. You know, you want to live. You want to. You want to flourish and uh and, and you know you think that it's a good thing that other people should also have that opportunity. That's the whole point of rights. And to think that, you know, rights were invented and just made up in the west and they have no basis in reality and somebody else's belief that people shouldn't have rights is just as good as ours. You know, that's that's malarkey. Nobody nobody really thinks that. You know, who holds a rational scientific worldview? So let's let's dispense with that myth that science has nothing to say about values and and, and start applying science to to making life, not just making life better, but understanding why we want to make it better.
0: Speaking of life being better, you also say in your book that despite what we get from the evening news, things are actually better in the world now than they've ever been. I can almost guarantee you that if I were to post that online I'd get nothing but arguments <coughs> to the contrary. Uh, why do you think that people believe that the opposite is true and what's your evidence for this being the case?
3: Uh, well first, um, you know, there's several factors at work here that, um, you know, we we should follow the trend lines, not the headlines, as Bill Clinton said recently. You know, the trend lines are all pointing in the right direction. The headlines, of course, you know, it's the job of the media to report bad news. That's what they do. And and so you can't really fault them for that. It's just the nature of the beast. Um, And so you'll never see, you know, a news crew standing in front of a a grammar school saying, you know, we've been here six hours and there hasn't been a single shooting, and we're going to stay here six more hours. Stay tuned. You know that that's not news. It's only news when there's a school shooting. Um, but in fact, pretty much every measurable form of crime and violence and and you know bad things that happen to people has been going down. And and on the positive side, you know, more people in more places around the world have more rights, more civil liberties. More freedom, more prosperity, more opportunity, more autonomy than ever before in history. Um, you know, not to mention the dentistry and the in the medicine. What it would have been like to live centuries ago. This is the best time it's ever been to be alive in, in almost anywhere in the world. And you know, I just you can just follow. There's tons of data sets. There's lots of web pages that graph these things every day. There's just tons of good news. And and to say that things are getting better is not to say that they're perfect or great magnificent wonderful there's little room for improvement. not no not at all there's lots of things we can uh, you know make better it's just to remind people that you know there really are reasons for hope uh, that we've been doing something right and it would be good to know you know what it is and and do more of it like democracies are demonstrably measurably really absolutely objectively better than dictatorships and autocracies and i can prove why that is and, and document it in many graphs i do in the book um so shouldn't we be applying that principle that is we should spread democracy in more places and we are uh, you know in 1800 there were zero liberal democracies even in 1900 there were only a couple places where women could vote and now pretty much every country in the world exception of saudi arabia has granted the franchise to all adults citizens and so um, you know, that that's a good thing. Why is it a good thing? Because women having the opportunity to express their participation in the political process um, empowers them and it makes us all better off and it makes them individually better off. So, um, you know, that would be an example of that. And of course, there's always exceptions. The moment you say things, are like, you know, what about Ferguson? You know, what about Syria? What about the terrorist attacks last week in Paris? Yes, 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 and yes, of course. No one's denying those things, but they're not as common as they used to be. You take someone like Donald Sterling, the owner of the Clippers, and everybody made a big fuss about, you know, how he made these racist remarks in private to his mistress about African-Americans. You see, racism is as bad as it's ever been. Oh, come on. You know, this guy did this in private, and you know, and and he was jumped on and had forced to sell his team. Most old guys like him thought like that back in the 50s, and they weren't especially private about it. (laughs) So, you know, that's how far we've come. You know, I I go so far as to say that the conservatives today are more liberal than liberals were in the 1950s. You know, it's progress that's just slow enough you don't see it daily, but in the long run, follow the trend lines, not the headlines.
0: Yeah, that was one of my favorite facts that I hadn't considered from your book. Conservatives today are more liberal than liberals in the nineteen fifties. That's just incredible, but it's true.
3: Yeah, it's true. Just think about how people talk about, you know, blacks and gays and women, and minorities and so on. Um, you know, it was pretty bad back in the like thirties, forties, fifties, but in the sixties it started to change. And you uh, know it's a credit to the liberals, um, who uh... you know challenges to change our language because you know the way you speak about other people changes the way you think about other people so let's stop saying those things And you know that got went overboard a little bit with all the politically correct police running around college campuses uh... finding finding people for saying you know microaggressions as it's called but but even that's a sign that you know we've come so far we're struggling to find just tiny tiny little increments of improvement left uh, you know, in college campuses say, uh, well, that, that means we've come a long ways.
0: Right. At a time when the blogosphere is flooded with messages about the free market and capitalism being bad for us, you write in your book that the free market actually contributes to morality in the world.
3: Yeah, I do. that. Um, and, of course, people say, oh, that's Shermer's a libertarian, whatever. Okay, let's quit, quit using the labels. Uh, you know, maybe I'm a libertarian, maybe I'm not. It depends what you mean by that. It, you know, the problem with labels is that people quit listening to the arguments and they just, you know, use it as a shortcut to quit thinking. Um, so, of course, there's abuses in capitalism, just like there's abuses in anything else. And so I like, say, John Mackey's concept of conscious capitalism. It's okay to make money and make a profit, but you also need to take care of your employees, your community that your company is in, your customers, you know, and so on. There's, there's, there's ways to do this that... That are more moral, and and there's lots of people that do that, and and so I talk about that in the book. But more to the point, on the moral question, the effects of trade on on the way people think. Anything that enables you to interact with other people in a peaceful manner is a good thing. Travel, the internet, you know, interconnectedness of the world, trade with other people, um, you know, anything that gets you out and, and puts you in somebody else's shoes, in their head, in their Mind literacy rates going up is a good thing. People that read novels, a lot of novels, for example, score higher on tests for empathy and, and mind reading. That is, um, you know, the ability to read other people's facial expressions and understand what it is they're communicating. So we think, this is a little early on this research, but we think that reading novels Trains your brain to transport yourself into somebody else's head because that's what you're doing when you read a novel. Is you're becoming the character and looking through their eyes at the world. Um, that you know that kind of thing makes people more moral in the sense that, that they're better able to understand what other people who are not like them you know are feeling. And uh, so all that adds up, I think, to you know good things. There's nothing magical about you know trade. It's just a, a pragmatic thing of interacting with other people in a peaceful manner.
0: So, wrapping up here, what work do you think we need to do as a species to keep this evolution of morality going? In other words, what areas do you think we need to work on the most?
3: Uh, well, the one that, that we're, we're almost done with is the um, gay rights and same-sex marriage. I think, uh, probably, fingers crossed, the Supreme Court votes on this, and and then all states, uh, you know, allow gay marriage and and with the, then by 2020 say that 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 revolution will be done people will be talking about gay marriage like we talked about interracial marriage like what what were those people thinking you know who who would be who would be opposed to that so i think that's the, the most immediate one uh then of course it, it, you know animal rights is is going to take much longer i i think you know the idea that atheists are not moral you know that's another one we need to work on um, you know, and following in the coming out campaign that that um, you know the gay community has used, I think you know Dawkins' idea of a coming out campaign is good I think that's a, it's a good good plan uh, I am still worried about not religion it 's too too broad a concept, but Islam in particular i mean, let 's just say it you know it 's the elephant in the room it's it 's islam you know as sam said it 's the mother load of bad ideas. And it really is. Um, we need to not attack the people. We're not attacking Muslims. It's Islamic ideas, you know, Sharia, you know, Islamic, um, you know, ideas about how women should be treated. You know that you know infidels and people that leave their religion should be executed. You know, death penalty for adultery. You know these these kinds of things are barbaric, old, long ago debunked ideas. Um, and and so that that I am worried about. Uh, I don't I don't I'm, it's not an existential concern I don't think Islam could you know destroy all Western civilization and send us back into you know barbaric dark ages I don't think that's gonna happen but the terrorist goal of, well by definition terrorizing people you know we have a zero tolerance for terrorism 35 to 40,000 people a year die on the streets of America 19,000 people die of homicides every year You know, we tolerate that, but, you know, if three people or ten people or a dozen people are killed by a terrorist, then we're willing to spend billions of dollars to prevent one more from happening. Uh, I don't think we're thinking rationally about this. I mean, I think we have to do something about it, you know, in terms of changing people's thinking, but I don't think it's an existential crisis, Uh, but it is something that we definitely need to work on.
0: Well, Michael Shermer, thank you so much for being my first guest on the podcast. Where can people go to find out more about what you're up to?
3: Oh, well, thanks for having me, and I'm glad to be your first, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Uh, So moralarc.org is the the book webpage, and of course, skeptic.com is our Skeptic Magazine webpage.
0: Great. Well, thanks so much. Are you a bigot? Now you probably answered no to that question, but you would probably also agree that bigotry exists and therefore there are bigots. So where does bigotry come from? Social scientists have been trying to answer that question for generations now and of course it boils down to the argument of nature versus nurture. One of the most impressive attempts to demonstrate the learned nature of bias that I have ever heard about took place in the late 1960s in a rural grade school in Riceville, Iowa. In this exercise, a third grade teacher named Jane Elliott was motivated by the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King in an exercise that used eye color to separate her all white class into social groups. Now most of these kids had no real life experiences with people of different races. And what Elliot wanted to do was create a situation in which they could experience what it might be like for people of color in America. Little did she know how profoundly the experience would impact their lives.
2: When many people see a black person or a yellow person or a red person, what do they think? Oh, oh, really? Look at that. Dumb people. Now look at the dumb people. What else do they think sometimes? What kinds of things do they say about black people? Oh, called negroes, niggers. In the city, many places in the United States, how are black people treated? How are Indians treated? How are people who are of a different color than we are like treated? They,
0: like like they're, they're
2: part of this place. world. They don't get anything in this world. Why like, is that? Because they're different color. You think you know how I would feel yeah. to be judged by the color of your skin? Yeah. I don't, Do you think you do? No, I don't think you'd know how that felt unless you had been through it, would you? (laughs) It might be interesting to judge people today by the color of their eyes. Would you like to try this? Yeah! Sounds like fun, doesn't it? Blue-eyed people are the better people in this room. Oh, yes, they are. Mm. Blue-eyed people are smarter than brown-eyed people. (laughs) Uh, My dad isn't that stupid. Uh, Is your dad brown-eyed? Yeah. One day you came to school and you told us that he kicked you. He did. Do you think a blue-eyed father would kick his son? My dad's blue-eyed. He's never kicked me. Greg's dad is blue-eyed. He's never kicked him. Rex's dad is is blue-eyed. He's never kicked him this is a this is a fact blue-eyed people are better than brown-eyed people
0: so after setting the stage Elliot then went on to explain to the children the new rules for their little society for one brown-eyed children were no longer allowed to play with blue-eyed kids on the playground blue-eyed kids would get five extra minutes of recess as well as seconds at lunchtime. brown-eyed children were also instructed to use paper cups when using the drinking fountain, implying that they carried dangerous germs. Throughout the week, Elliot was also careful to point out any instances in which brown-eyed children were distracted, had behavioral or learning difficulties, or any of the other common but trivial problems kids have each day, always careful to attribute them to their inferior eye color. Within a surprisingly short period of time, Elliot said she saw major changes in the kids.
2: I watched what had been marvelous, cooperative, wonderful, thoughtful children turn into nasty, vicious, discriminating little third graders in a space of 15 minutes. What happened at recess? Were two of you boys fighting? Yeah! yeah. Russell and John What happened, John? Russell, call me. Names and I hit him, hit him in the gut. What did he call you? Brown eyes.
0: That last piece of audio for me is probably the most impactful part of the documentary. What did he call you? Brown eyes. And for that he hit him. What Elliot had done here wasn't just to get kids to turn against each other. She had created an entirely new form of bigotry and an artificial one that the kids had not held before the experiment. Elliot also noted that the children's learning was being affected. Math and reading scores during the period correlated with in-group, out-group assignment. Those in the group being discriminated against were performing worse each time. She surmised that the pressures and distractions associated with discrimination were bearing down on these kids, causing them to underperform.
2: It seemed like when we were down on the bottom, everything bad was happening to us. The way they treated you, you, felt like you didn't even want to try to do anything. It seemed like Mrs. Elliot was taking our best friends away from us.
0: One of the most ingenious parts of this experiment was that halfway through, Elliot then reversed the discrimination, telling the brown-eyed children that they were actually superior to blue-eyed children, and reversing all the rules.
2: Yesterday I told you that brown-eyed people aren't as good as blue-eyed people. That wasn't true. I lied to you yesterday. The truth is that brown-eyed people are better than blue-eyed people.
0: (laughs) As you've probably guessed by now, the infighting continued. The bigotry simply reversed itself. And, of course, the effect on academics also reversed, with the brown-eyed children suddenly outperforming the blue-eyed. To a lot of people, it seems self-evident that prejudice is unnatural and learned. In fact, they even wrote a song about it for the musical South Pacific. Got to be taught to
3: hate and fear. You've got to be taught from year to year. It's got to be drummed
0: in your dear little ear. You've got to be
3: carefully taught. You've got
0: to. With all due respect to Rogers and Hammerstein. The scientific evidence reveals a more complex picture than those lyrics would suggest. For decades, researchers have been showing the wide variability and malleable nature of human bigotry. As it turns out, being carefully taught isn't the whole picture. Scientists like Dr. Karen Wynn at Yale University's Infant Cognition Center are beginning to reveal what they say are the biological roots of bigotry. Wynn's studies have shown that infants as early as six months of age show not only the foundations of morality, but also the vestiges of the darker parts of the human condition. In some of her studies, Wynne entertains babies with a puppet show. For clarity, we'll call this first phase the helpful or mean puppet show. In it, a puppet struggles to open a box. Along comes Puppet A wearing a colored shirt who helps him open the box. This show is repeated with the little puppet trying again to get the box open, and along comes Puppet B in a differently colored shirt who slams the box shut. So babies just watched a puppet show in which Puppet A is being helpful and Puppet B is being mean. These babies are then presented with these puppets by a blinded assistant and are given the chance to choose either puppet to play with results show that the babies are far more likely to reach out for puppet a the nice helpful puppet and this is no small margin they choose the nice puppet more than 80 percent of the time this seems to suggest that even young infants have an innate sense of morality they recognize helpful people and they have positive feelings for them that's really bad news for those people who think our morality has to be taught by religion or culture But even more surprising, perhaps, are the results of a second part of the study. In this one, which we'll call the Sameness Difference Puppet Show, Wynn first presents two bowls of treats to each kid, either Cheerios cereal or graham crackers. Each kid's choice is recorded and used in the next phase of the study. A puppet is then shown to the baby, clearly eating and enjoying the same treat the baby chose, Sameness Puppet and another puppet is shown eating and enjoying the treat that the baby didn't like, difference puppet. Once again the baby is given the opportunity to choose which puppet to play with. A majority of the time babies show a strong preference for playing with the sameness puppet. In other words they prefer those who share even seemingly meaningless characteristics with them. We do this as adults too. Studies show that we tend to like people who like the same things we do. We tend to befriend and have more positive feelings toward people who share our tastes in music, fashion, sports team, careers, and even people who look more like us than not. The truly disturbing part of Wynn's studies has been revealed more recently. This phase we'll call the bigotry puppet show. Here, the researchers repeat the first puppet show, but this time, it's not just some random puppet who's trying to get the box open, it's the difference puppet. In other words, the babies will see a puppet trying to open a box and being helped or hindered just like they saw in the first puppet show, but now they have an opinion of this puppet. Now he's a puppet that likes a type of food they don't like. He's part of an out group, not one of us. So how will the baby react? The puppet comes out onto the little stage and attempts to open the box. A puppet comes along and helps him get it open the show was repeated and another puppet comes along and prevents the difference puppet from opening the box. Given a choice now between playing with a helpful puppet and a mean puppet, guess who the babies choose? That's right, this time they want to play with the mean puppet. That's because he was mean to somebody who's different. In other words, Wynn's research suggests that we may have an inherent desire to see people different from us treated badly. The good news is that like most inherent human behaviors such as greed, lust, revenge, we can be carefully taught not to act upon them. But in order to gain control over our bigotry, whether it be sexism, racism, homophobia, transphobia, or any of the other forms of hatred humans engage in, we need to take an honest and perhaps sobering look at the research and be able to accept whatever it shows us.
1: Today I'm going to touch on the current subject of the show of morality and bigotry in our society. News has come out in the last couple of weeks of two women's rights activists, Mahdi Goru and Swad Al Shamari who were freed from prisons in Saudi Arabia and Iran for various crimes. What was that crime? Well, I'm glad you asked. Mahdi Gauru was arrested in October after attending a protest gathering in order to speak up against the acid attacks on women in Iran. Suad al-Shamari, co-founder of the Saudi Liberal Network, was released from prison in Saudi Arabia after being arrested for insulting Islam by speaking critically about the nation's clerics and religious police who enforced the brutal Sharia laws. Mahdi Goru said that she spent 45 days in solitary confinement in Tehran's notorious Ivan prison, a prison that is known for their um, torture and treatment against political prisoners, and was only allowed to meet with family in the presence of officials. While this is a good development and good news, it isn't the end of this story, as she may face further prosecution for speaking out. At the same time as this, news has also come out that two Saudi Arabian women were released from prison after being arrested for driving. Yes, they were arrested for driving. Saudi Arabia apparently has a blanket ban on female drivers in Saudi Arabia and that was their crime. The interesting thing about this is the comments from people on social media networks after this had come out. While most of the comments are in support of this good news has happened and outraged that in our so-called enlightened society this may still happen, there have been many people who have stated that we have no right to pass judgment on another culture's laws. I'm all for respecting a culture and the laws of that culture and I believe in the right for a country to conduct their society in the way they see fit. However i draw the line when that law encourages bigotry and suppresses the basic human rights that many of us take for granted it is the very fact that i am having to give this as good news says that these matters still happening in our society and that as humans we still have some work to do Maybe one of the good things is that we are speaking out about this. We're not leaving that country or that society to enact their laws in a way that they think is appropriate. Maybe that's also the good news. Either way, we need to continue to speak out. We need to continue to highlight what is going on. And we also, more importantly, need to continue to recognize that bigotry, discrimination and oppression still exist in our society. As we do that, we are closer to fighting against what is happening. Thank you very much for listening. My name is Amanda DeBell and I'm bringing you the good news.
0: Well, kids, that's the show. Thanks for listening to episode one of Shell Shocked. And be sure to check us out next week when we discuss the phenomenon of denialism and how people's ideology and ignorance leads them to reject science, history, and in some cases, reality. Our guest interviewed for that episode will be Holocaust survivor Magda Brown, who will tell us about her experiences as a young girl in Auschwitz during World War II. For more information about the show, myself, my co-host Amanda DeVau, and to download episodes, please visit my website at SheldonHelms.com. Until then, my name is Sheldon Helms, and you've been Shellshocked.